Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Wild Tales podcast. I'm Jason Fox, and today I'm going to be speaking to cyclist, adventurer, and broadcaster Mark Beaumont. Mark holds the record for cycling around the world, a feat which has turned into a book and a BAFTA-nominated film, The Man Who Cycled the World. Mark's also completed feats including Cycling the Americas, Taking on the Africa Solo Challenge, and a hell of a lot more, as you'll hear. The podcast is presented by The Book of Man and supported by Talisker Single Malt Whiskey. I hope you enjoy it. So, hello everyone. I'd like to uh, take this opportunity now to welcome everyone back after the uh, Christmas and New Year break and um, to our first guest of the year, which is Mark Beaumont, who has done an incredible amount and I don't know even know whether we're going to be able to fit it all in in this podcast, but we're going to have a go anyway. Mark, welcome. Thanks for coming along. Yeah, good to meet Um You've come quite a long way. You live in Scotland. Whereabouts do you live? Uh, I now live in the heart of Edinburgh, which is a pretty good launch pad for adventure but i grew up in the middle of perthshire foothills of the highlands it's closer to go to glenshee skiing than it was to go to school so yeah pretty good place to start <laughs> i'm a big fan of edinburgh by the way it's an amazing place but what was it like growing up were you sort of into the outdoors from the off i mean i, I mean the answer is yes but not in a not in a sort of athletic competitive way i was homeschooled i was on a farm you know, so until I was twelve, I did an hour or two around the kitchen table, and the rest of the time was working on the farm. So before breakfast every morning, we had to milk sixty goats, we had to muck out thirteen horses, we had to collect the eggs from two hundred hens. You know, we had a farm to run, and most of my time was spent riding ponies. You know, going camping, uh, just just living in the outdoors. So my only two buddies really until I was at high school were my sisters. So if you if you have a if the first decade of your life is 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 like that adventure is kind of just what you're doing it's not like something you're pushed into it's not mm. like i was in the scouts or dv or doing anything which was following a formula it was just i was on a farm and i i was kind of just a a feral kid also i'm i always wanted to work on a farm i'll probably actually if i ever got the opportunity i'd probably deny that i ever wanted to work on a farm but I did want to work on a farm and I got an opportunity to do bits and pieces because I grew up sort of in Bedfordshire, which isn't quite as gnarly as, you know, the foothills of the Highlands. But for me, it was gnarly enough. Um, your relationship with your sister's good. You just sort of like basically yeah. got conditioned into living outdoors, I suppose, working on that farm. Yeah, I mean, it was awesome. I mean, it was a complete Swallows and Amazons existence, which is probably a reference point that's lost in the millennials. But it's uh, it was awesome. It was just complete freedom. And... Um, we had the FAF, which was the Family Army Force, and then we let some neighbours uh, join in, so it became the Friends Army Force instead. I was, of course, uh, you know, the, the, the captain, and uh, <laughs> we used to go around, and our um, 
our only real textbook for the FAF was the SAS Survival Guide. Do you remember that old square thing with the black and white front cover? I know it quite well. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you know the old deathfall traps and 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 all that stuff. So uh, so we yeah. spent our childhood just working on the farm, skinning rabbits and making our own shoes out of uh, rabbit skins. And um, <laughs> and so can you imagine doing all that and then getting plonked into high school and thirteen hundred kids in a concrete playground? You know, I was completely socially inept you know so so i i started by saying i wasn't sporty and adventurous in the traditional sense because i was shocking at rugby i was shocking at football i was shocking at anything with a sort of a social dynamic to because i was just this kid that had been dressed in overalls and wellington boots and you know lived on the farm for the first 12 years of my life so i felt i found that a bit of a bump and if you were to ask any of my peers from like schooling age i was not a sporty kid but that's because everything i did was outside it was Skiing, it was horse riding, it was riding my bike, it was just, you know, camping trips and climbing hills. Which is sporty, but I suppose turning up for rugby in a pair yeah, of shorts w- made out of rabbit skin doesn't go down no, so well when you're a bit too Flintstones. I was, <laughs> I was, uh, I, I, you know, as you can imagine, I sort of got gently bullied into shape because I just didn't know the rules of the playground. If you've never been in a playground until you're 12, it's quite a lot to get used to. And the rules I lived by were very different. So I'm very close with my sisters, of course I am. And um, we've all ended up doing totally different things with our lives. But I'm 37 and you can easily reverse engineer mine and say, well, of course you ended up doing what you've done because of the start you had. But, you know, as I say, we've, we've taken it in totally different directions. And as I say, I didn't really sort of start to think that, you know, I could do something with this till much later on. But the you know, the acorns of these ideas, the, you know, the, the quiet confidence to go out there and just spend time in my own company and do big expeditions and suffer. You know, that that definitely started from just life on the farm. We got the early days done. Was there any later school, was there any further education, you know, when you've done your GCSEs? Did you continue on with education? Yeah, so I was, I mean, I was quite good at school. So, I mean, you know, I, I, um, I even though I hadn't gone to school, I didn't suffer in an academic sense. Because I was quite, you know, I did well on all my exams, I've always sort of been quite good at sort of mad ideas and then I sort of have to come up with a plan of how to make it happen yeah and I've always my team I've always got this sort of quite oh shit here we go again and it's just sort of my I guess the way I'm wired up you know I sort of spot an opportunity and then I try and figure out how to do it so at that point I was just like right I'm going to go to America no reference point for that I was like I want to go to Harvard so I sat my SATs I did my entrance exams I got accepted and then my parents sat down and said you ain't going to Harvard because we can't afford it. And so that was classic sort of, you know, the way I'm wired up. I'm like, why not? Because I want to do it. There's, you know, I've not been very good at that sort of this is not what we do mindset. Yeah. And um, it was the same when I then left university, which ended up being Glasgow back in Scotland because it's free. And it's a great university and I got a perfectly useful economics and politics degree. So I was talking in my class of what, 300 economists graduates about working in finance and accounting and the rest of it because that's what you do when you're studying economics but the reality was I'd already sort of been on all these amateur expeditions as a teenager and I just I was on a parallel path I was quite academic I'd done really well through school and university and I was kind of set to do the whole uh, traditional career rat race uh, you know work in finance but I just sort of thought "Ah, why don't you know, I'm in student debt, what's a bit more debt? Why don't I just go on one big expedition to end all expeditions? I'd done a decade of amateur expeditions to that point. So it wasn't me thinking, right, this is the start of a career. I just simply thought, what have I got to lose? 
And kind of similar to that mindset with, uh, hey, I'm going to go to Harvard. Why? Don't know. Just fancy the idea of it. I thought, well, let's cycle around the world. And then I had to figure out how to even start to do that. I'd never pedaled outside of Europe before. What was the first amateur expedition? How old were you? What was the first one? And was that what set the, the cogs turning with regard to your mind wanting to do more and more with regard to adventure? I mean, yeah, I mean, the answer, the answer is yes. But, but once again, I can only say that looking back. Yeah. You know, where I was at the time, it was just like, well, let's do that. And then once you've finished a big journey, I mean, you'll know what this feels like. You've built that, not just the technical skill set, but just you back yourself. You've got the confidence. You can kind of see the next horizon. You're like, ah, that leads to that. That yeah. leads to that. And then I can look back over the last 25 years since my first expedition and go, well, of course, it's a very clear chronology. But that's not how it feels like when you're living your life. Mm. And I think it's the same with anything, with sport, with uh with any with any career, um, so I was 11 years old when I picked up the local rag, the local paper, and read about a guy who had cycled from John O'Groats to Land's End. You know, that's the big box to tick for cyclists in the UK, and I just thought it looked cool. I, I was just like, wow, that's amazing! It was just a picture and a, and a and a little story. So I went to the the Landy, the farm car, got the old A road map out, and found all the roads that joined Land's End to John O'Groats. You can imagine, as an 11 year old, that was like a an afternoon's work with a highlighter pen and then I presented this to my mom and dad and I said can I can I do this <laughs> and I had the, the the article I had the the, the maps all marked up and <laughs> um, my dad uh, I guess being a bit of a grumpy farmer just told me off for sort of putting highlighter pen all over the map and um, my mum uh, said look why don't you try something smaller first because you've not really cycled off the farm before and uh, so I <laughs> Backing on a tricycle. <laughs> so I recruited a buddy of mine, uh, a next door neighbour really, on the next farm, and we went across Scotland, Dundee to Oban. So it was a three day ride, like 150 miles, raised a couple of thousand for charity, which I think I'd just turned 12. As a 12 year old kid, it wasn't just the um, the ride, which was good fun, but it was the whole planning of it, like the expedition planning, and then afterwards telling my story, getting my picture in the paper. I got a real buzz from that. And I got a real buzz from it, especially at the time when I was getting bullied at school. You know, you can imagine at that age, I just started high school. I just, you know, lacked an identity. I was mm. I was definitely the last kid to be picked at football, at rugby and all that stuff. And then the fact I was a good skier, there was, you know, I'd already sort of been on an expedition, a journey. That gave me a purpose. Mm. And then by the time I was 15, I did my first thousand mile ride. Did the Atlanta and John O'Groats. And they just got bigger and bigger. So I was kind of misusing all my holidays for adventures and... Uh, you can imagine, you know, 22, leaving university, giving lip service to the fact that you're going to get an accountancy job, but really you just want to go on a big adventure. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, for people listening, I'm I'm with uh, Mark on this one. If if you want to go and do some form of adventure, start small, but the some of the best bits of it are the planning, the logistics, and you've already worked out what you're going to do, but you haven't worked out how you're going to do it, and that's some of the fun that goes into the experience in general, isn't it? A hundred percent. And when people obviously watch or follow or listen to podcasts, these you know these journeys, these exploits, it's often about the world record, the accolade, the way other people see it. When you live your life and you take on these major projects, like anything, it's it's entirely different. You know, there's a ton of setbacks, there's a ton of disappointment, there's a ton of stress. Mm. But that's actually the things you end up enjoying. Not that you're looking for hardship, but, you know, the career-defining, life-affirming stuff is always the struggle. And I don't, I say you're not looking for that, but but it's ultimately 
what makes the projects the, the the kind of the fun days the days with the tailwind when everything goes well kind of blur into one yeah but the days you really strive and struggle and and doubt yourself are are ultimately you know the things you you don't you know you don't really remember a major expedition for the guinness world record that sits no. on the walls and i think that's the perspective you know when you're actually doing it yourself rather than rather than watching somebody else doing it yeah, myself and uh, myself and Aldo Kane actually, we we've named those, we've we've categorised fun, and it's like type one, type one fun and type two fun. That's type two, because it's the stuff that you do remember. It's not fun when you do it. Yeah, it's it's actually miserable as sin. But when you've done it, you know, say sort of like five days later, you look back and go, oh, that's quite good fun. That. Yeah. And type one fun's actually when you go down the pub and meet girls and all that sort of thing. Not now, obviously, but. You know what I mean, but I think and, I think when, and you never really remember it; it just moulds into one sort of memory. And and I often think when when you are sitting in the pub having your pint, which is type one fun, the things that you're talking about with your mates are the type two fun. Exactly, and that's, yeah. That's when you sort of the the penny drops, and you go, you know, I'm not I'm not looking for an uncomfortable life, but the stuff that makes it worthwhile is ultimately the things that that that, that, that test you. Which might might sound like a wonderful cliche, but um, you know, the, the more you the more you test yourself, and the more that you push yourself. If you look at anyone who has taken, like, you know, been, had that sort of, that sort of healthy dose of obsession, that sort of quiet confidence and that sort of real hunger to push themselves. If you've done something, anything, I don't care what it is for 10, 20, 30 years, anyone else should look at what you are doing and go, how do you do that? Because it's more than just the technical skill set that you've built up. It's the, as I've said a few times, that quiet confidence, how you see yourself, the Mm -hmm. network you've got. The fact that, you know, the way you operate is just the sum total of everything you've done. Mm -hmm. So I often think like, you know, when people approach me every single week with their grand ambitions to do amazing things, I never doubt their core competence, their athleticism, the fact that they're, you know, a a sailor or a skier or or a cyclist, whatever it is. I I never doubt that sport. It's all the other stuff. Mm. It's do you have the drive, the gumption, the, the wherewithal to get these projects to the start line and then see it through. And the, and the scale of that ambition is more than just, you know, we don't live in a meritocracy. The people that get to the top of their game and really sort of push the boundaries of the possible, it's not just because they've done their apprenticeship and they're good at what they do. It's because of all the other stuff, which might look sort of fluffy and wild, but it's actually kind of what... So, I mean, if if I look at anyone, you know, they could be you know, living in the corporate world or the adventure world or an artist, I don't really care. I want to, I can connect with somebody if I can see that after 10, 20, 30 years, they've just got that fire in the belly. You mm-hmm. know, they, and I just look at them and go, how do you do what you do? You know, the, the, the sum total of learning and confidence and everything else, that's that's the cool bit. That's the interesting bit. It's the, the, the tenacity and stubbornness to want to keep doing it and doing it to the best of their ability and actually just keep going through all the hardships that it brings with you. Um, going back to the, the the first ever bike ride as an eleven year old, I'm intrigued to know what the bike was. <laughs> Entirely inappropriate. It was like a for a road ride. It was just a, I think it was a, a the local bike shop had lent me a, a mountain bike. Um, so oh, it was just a you know for 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 a road ride going out on a on a bike with front suspension and knobbly tires. I wasn't. I never raced. I never was coached. I never joined a club. I never. I never sort of learned the rules uh, I just was kind of on my own journey for 10 years between the age of 12 and 22 so by the time I sort of graduated and thought well let's pedal around the planet I was pretty wide-eyed and naive about that it was like the 11 year old going hey can I do John O'Groat's Land's End it was like the 18 year old going hey I'm going to Harvard I, I just 
I got an idea and then I sort of tried to figure out how to make that possible as opposed to as opposed to just you know really knowing what I was talking about now I've always been a planner I've always been pretty meticulous but I often think at the idea stage there's there's often a bit of a, a leap so I'm you know I'm, I'm a huge fan of shooting for the stars you know go nuts take on your biggest dream but learn your trade you know mm-hmm. again that's something that I see every single week when people talk to me about stuff I'm like Climb Everest, row an ocean, do 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 what you do what you dream of doing, but you know, learn your trade, know yeah, what you yeah. know what you're doing. So so there's this social media world that we live in now, you know, I'm all for sort of pushing ambition, but then you've got to sort of join the dots somehow. But I often think the way I'm wired up, there's often that leap at the idea stage where there is a ton of stuff I don't know, and then I madly backfill. Then I madly yeah, sort yeah. of figure out, you know, what it actually takes. You have to take that leap of faith, though, don't you? Yeah. Every, everyone does in, in whatever you do and wherever you are when you're doing it. But we've talked about starting out as a child, as a kid. We've gone through the first expedition, very touched on it lightly, bit of schooling. Let's talk about, I'm super, super fascinated by the idea and it happening of cycling around the world. What was just the route if we talk through the route and then we'll go on to other things as we as we sort of so the, the when i when i first so i've I've cycled around the planet twice yeah um it's an eighteen thousand mile race so all land-based circumnavigations whether you drive it motorbike it run it you know they're all eighteen thousand miles you've got to leave leave and finish at the same point both times it's been paris for me always go in the same direction so, so this is this is dictated by the Guinness Book of Records yeah. whatever you do when it goes around the world has to follow the same route through the same countries not the same route right okay so the strict criteria so people over the last 10-15 years have taken vastly different routes but you have to never go back on yourself hit yeah. antipodal points so that's two points on the opposite side of the planet uh, there's a bunch of criteria right um, so once you figure out what it is you're then trying to find the flattest fastest 18,000 yeah. miles around the planet so the first time I did the race I went from Paris to Calcutta, so that's Turkey, Iran, Pakistan, India, uh, across Australia, up New Zealand, across the southern tier of the US, so like San Fran across to Florida, yeah. and then back up through Europe from Lisbon. Whereas the second time, um, 10 years later... So you didn't touch the UK at all on the touch actual... It. Right, okay, didn't touch okay. it, and there's reason for that. Yeah. Um, the second time I took an entirely different route, so I went from... Um, Paris to Beijing, so much further north. Yeah. You basically get stuck north or south of the Karakoram and the, high, uh, the, the Himalayas. So you've got to you've got to choose your route through Asia. Yeah. So I went through Europe and then through Russia, Mongolia, China, totally different. And then when I hit North America, I went Alaska to Halifax, Anchorage to Halifax. So again, a totally different route. Yeah. But you know, very much within the rules. The um, <laughs> I take it the Australia bit's all the same. There's not many options. No, okay. If anyone's been across the Nullarbor in the middle of Australia, yeah, there's not many people out there. So it's basically Oz, and then it's always up, up New Zealand. You've got to go to New Zealand to hit your antipodal point. Yeah. So it's actually quite hard to get a town or a place in the southern hemisphere, which is exactly on the other side of the world as the north. So I've always used, both times, I've used Madrid and Wellington. Okay, yeah. You could use, like, somewhere in Chile and China. But there's very few other land-based circumnavigation, uh, antipodal points. Um, the main rule change in the decade between the two times I pedaled the planet was, first time around, it was ride time only. So basically, the clock starts, and then when you finish each continent, you know, 
and you, you get you, on the you, transport. You pause time, you yeah. jump on the flight and they carry on. But then about five, six years ago, somebody kind of spoiled the fun because they took recovery time after each leg. So their total time was quite different to their ride time. Uh. So Guinness World Record turned around and said, yep, you've ticked all the boxes of the criteria. We will honour that. But then they archived the record and said, look, new rule, the clock never stops. So it was out there to be set again, basically. Yeah. Sort I mean, of. With- quite often. So before I went for it the first time, not that many people had gone for it. Now, in my world, the circumnavigation world record is the ultimate. I mean, it's like the round the world sailing record. Mm-hmm. My, my belief is that it should be the biggest, most coveted endurance record on a bike. You know, it's, it's the world, it's the planet. Yeah, yeah. And yet 15 years ago, it barely been touched. Very few people had tried it. When I first spotted it as a, as a student at uh, uni, my first thought was, why is this not being done properly? You know, I didn't rate myself as a, as a professional bike racer. It was more of a feat of enterprise. I was like, wow, hang on. The record stood at 276 days. And I never like to be unkind about anyone who has cycled around the whole world, but 276 is it's very slow. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I looked at that and I thought, well, even with the experience I've got, and I've never pedaled outside of Europe before, I thought, well, at that time I can ride a century a day, so 100 miles a day. That adds up to half a year on the road. So I took two months off the record the first time I went for it. And I thought the time that I laid down was, was pretty good, pretty competitive, 194 days. It became a big... Uh, documentary series on the Beeb, um, launched my career, and um, yeah, it's amazing how your perspective changes over time. Because because I did that in a, a really high-profile way across the media, it went from like five people having ever gone for it to like five people a year going for it. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not taking the entire credit for that, but it suddenly became a thing. You've got to imagine my career sort of launched 2007, 2008. There was an explosion in interest in cycling, you know, we then had the London Olympics. My career has coincided perfectly with that. You know, cycling has gone from niche to mainstream. It's gone huge. So um, when I, the record I set the first time, people quickly took massive chunks off that. It went from like a solo, unsupported, proper trekking record, carrying all your kit, your camp stove and tent and whatnot, to an out-and-out race, like a full-on like Tour de France-style race, where, you know, you've got, support trucks with you and physio and cooks and the rest of it so whilst it's the same record by definition it's a totally different it's a totally different thing now i mean the record for pedaling around the planet now is 78 days 14 hours 40 minutes so i mean compare that to 276 yeah unbelievable so the first time you did it you did it carrying your tent like an expedition it was an expedition i was completely on my own for half a year and uh to be honest with you looking back the adventure was more what happened off the bike than on the bike. Mm. You know, I'm not belittling 100 miles a day, but, you know, it's really about finding clean water, you know, yeah, yeah. getting through, where's your next meal? Where are you going to sleep each night? You get to mid-afternoon going, where am I sleeping? You know, sleeping in the road underneath, you know, in ditches in Iran or in mosques or being under levy Pakistani transport police going around the baluchi Helman border. You know, that's a proper adventure. Mm-hmm. and um, you know 3,000 miles into a headwind in the outback water rationing waking up the spiders in your tent you know it's it's the, the cycling was kind of what happened to get me between the interesting stories and I mean I was just so you know I thought I knew the world from the pages of a book you know I'd studied 
development economics and international politics and I thought I was quite learned and then actually you go out there and you join it all up you pedal around the planet and then since then you know the expeditions have taken me to 130 plus countries and you kind of your perspective changes and yeah it's uh it's interesting looking back at where it started because um I really whilst I planned it as best I could there was a huge there was a huge dose of naivety. There was just a, how could you possibly know what you were getting yourself into? I just pedaled out from Paris for half a year on my own. My only buddy was a camera, which I held at arm's length, and I would sit there in my tent at the end of the day and just chat away to it. BBC had said, if you do well, if you manage to tell the story, then we'll make it into a half-hour doc for BBC Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) You're out there for half a year. And, you know, there was days that I would chat to that camera for half an hour. This was like my Wilson. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, by the time I came back, it became a big series and went out on network. But um, baby steps, you know, when I started, it was just a little story told my local paper and, you know, and off I went. Talking about the first circumnavigation race around the globe on a bike, you took that route where you pretty much came south of the uh, Himalayas. You just mentioned it then coming through Pakistan and you were going through Baluchistan, sort of bordering the, uh, just, just south, I take it south of the Afghan border. It's a pretty porous border, as you know. Yeah, I know, I know it quite well, which is why I'm going to ask you about it. How was it? I mean, I know that area reasonably well and I'm, it's, it's, it's pretty dangerous to be honest. There's been some scrapes down there, but what was that like? And how, how did you deal with the, the politics and, I mean, so the, there's a lot going on. So the month before I went through, I think that route would be impossible now. What year was that? Two thousand and end of two thousand seven. <laughs> so I mean, that's a pretty tasty time, to be fair. Yeah, it was interesting. So the British, the British embassy, the British Foreign Office didn't want me. Sorry, the British Foreign Office didn't want me travelling through that region. Mm. There'd been twenty kidnappings on that Pakistan-Afghan border. Yeah. the month in the single month before I went through and uh, the BBC said look if you do carry on through can you please send your cameras back <laughs> so, so there was me well they're and- worth a lot of money to be fair you know what I mean <laughs> so then there was me in the town of Bam in southern Iran currying back my cameras and carrying on my Todd um, you know I, I'm, I don't I don't want to um, you know promote risk taking uh, I think what was my perspective at the time certainly different now were you received well by the people in that area i'm not before i answer that i think now that i'm sort of married with two kids i'm not sure i would do that now yeah i i I think you know i've been in enough close corners and close and and scrapes that i'd probably see that risk profile differently yeah you know um was i in any close scrapes so i was under iranian sort of security for the last but sort of civilian security for the last couple of days through the desert on the baluchi side yeah. sorry the baluchistan desert on the iranian side and then that's such a weird border crossing yeah i don't know if you've been there but it's um it's just a, a hut in the middle of nowhere and a sort of a mm. gate and you know you go from the right hand side of the road and then you cross over and you're on the left the last place you've had a a, a glass of black tea and then you cross into to to pakistan you're at the next police station and you're having a cup and saucer with milk in it and you're like oh we're back in the commonwealth <laughs> so even though you're in the middle of the desert and nothing's changed visually you can sort of see that um cultural shift the the levy which is the pakistani transport police were 
mixed blessing. I couldn't have got through without them, but they were a right pain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's a complete waste of their time to be escorting a cyclist through the desert. Mm. Every time I changed guard, they just wanted to chuck my bike in the back of the, those Bluto to pickups that they've got. And, you know, they would use their their AKs as walking sticks. You know, I thought, well, they don't look like they're much use and these <laughs> sort of haggard policemen don't look like they're able to do much if anything kicked off. So I didn't have massive trust. And obviously, every time they... It was also... Um, it was also uh, September, so it was um, uh, Ramadan. Yeah, yeah. So not just did I have a police guard that didn't thought it was a waste of their time escorting me through the desert, but they were also hungry and thirsty and just wanting to break fast at the end of the day. And every time they stopped at the police stations, they just wanted to natter to their mates. So my urgency in my race was culturally, even if there was a language in common, completely at odds with what yeah. they were doing. So that section that you'll probably know quite well, through to Quetta, mm. um, there's a lot of refugee camps, there's a lot of activity, there's, it's a pretty open border, there's lots of just big field guns pointing north. It's um, a lot of burnt out buses and vehicles on the road that the road now just goes around. It's, it, you know, it's pretty wild. Mm. And, you know, keep in mind, I just pedaled out out of Europe for the first time. When I turned east at Quetta and down to Jakababad and then up the Indus Valley, it was a huge relief to sort of leave that. Leave that area. And feel like I was... And even, But I have to say, you know, there was a few dodgy points where I felt a bit sort of nervous, but I was never directly threatened. Mm. It was more of just a, a pain in the arse with the, with the police who made my life pretty difficult. Right, okay. Did you, prior to leaving the... Well, yeah, leaving the UK... What sort of admin had you needed to crack to get all the sort of paperwork through? Did you do that or did you just cuff it? Yeah, on the run? no, 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 absolutely. It all had to be in place because yeah. I was on a pretty tight timeline. All my visas had to be set up, obviously, getting all the embassies and the border agencies on board, using local tour operators. In fact, the, the, the security escort through Pakistan came through local fixers in Pakistan. You've got to have the inside man, you've got to know people. You, you know, that, that, that level of reference, I mean, it's the same just going through Russia and, mm. and China and places we've been through more recently. Unless you have that connectivity, unless you've set it up beforehand, you can't wing it. No, no. And so, um, you know, that, that that homework allowed me to have the ability to make that decision myself. You know, despite the foreigners' advice, we did carry on through. I have to say to their credit, when I did made the decision to carry on, they were incredibly attentive and supportive and, um, you know, looked out for me and we caught up with them when I got to Lahore. So, um not a bad word to be said, and and uh, and the embassy, the British embassy, has uh, has always been, and the Foreign Office have always been massively supportive of the expeditions. You know, we've we've got a lot to be proud of when it comes to our diplomats around the planet yeah. looking after expeds and whatnot. I'm sure it's the same with the military, um, but quite often the risk profile that they're looking at is very different than your risk profile as an athlete. So if I'm going in, you know, with a media crew, it'll be very different if I'm going in just as a uh, as a civvy tourist and sometimes you sort of fly the broadcaster you know filmmaking flag really high because that's a passport it gives you access it's really helpful other times oh, you hide yeah. it other times you absolutely bury it and you're just joe blogs on your holidays so it's just knowing how to play your cards and knowing who to contact if you do end up in a bit of a scrape which mm -hmm. of course you know i've had a few of over the years so you went from let's get this I'm, I'm still intrigued by this but you went Turkey into Iran yeah down and then across again yeah past Quetta and then just across pack into yeah there'd been massive floods in northern India so I cut down to New Delhi and then across to Calcutta 
yeah. um, which is a beautiful ride. But if anyone's you know done any travels through that part of the world, culturally fascinating, rich, wonderful, but just quite claustrophobic. You know, if you're on a race, if you're on a schedule, it's not a part of the world that sort of works on your time scale. You know, to 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 um, just just get through quickly and safely. And um, you know, I absolutely love it there. But I got it was a wonderful relief to fly out of Calcutta down Southeast Asia, although that was a bit of a pain because it was monsoon season, and then get to halfway around, like 9,000 miles, and just go, right, Australia, back in the English-speaking part of the world, back on good roads, foods I recognise, clean water, and it's a proper race now. So in my mind, it was always, and it was the same the second time I raced around the planet, like the first half is all the unknowns and just get through safely, hopefully on time. And the second half is race on, build on whatever time we've put down and, you know, now we can... And all I would say is, both times I've pedaled the planet, whilst that's a nice theory, one of the hardest things to overcome on big expeditions is is false expectations. You know, if you sort of give yourself a car, if you look forward to something that doesn't happen, you know, both times I've pedaled the planet, it's not quite unfolded the way I thought, you know, tough rides through Australia, New Zealand, US. So if you spend sort of months teasing yourself that it's okay because it's going to get easier, you've got to be you've got to be ready for a, a hit at some point mm. because you know if that doesn't play out, you've got to know how to keep focused and keep the momentum. I mean, in brief contrast, you know, the first time I cycled the planet, I was riding a century a day, which at the time was incredibly hard. So I'm not patronising where I started in the first ride, but the second time I raced around the planet, I was I was averaging 240 miles a day. So I was riding nearly 400k a day, riding from 4am until half past nine at night, every single day for two and a half months. So the first time was a much better adventure for all the reasons I've described. But the second time makes the first time look like kindergarten, Mm. you know, because as an athlete, I mean, any good bike rider, if they had to, could ride 240 miles. You can get from my house in Edinburgh into Wales. It's a good stint. But to wake up five hours later and do that again, 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 mm-hmm. again, again for, for, for two and a half months, there's no reference point for that. Nobody's done that. And so that level of sort of discipline and suffering and what it took is hard to compare. But but it, but it I didn't have that immersion. You know, I wasn't getting off the bike and meeting people. You know, it, it wasn't about the people in Mongolia who I did not meet. I, I, would, I was head down racing. That's unbelievable. It's pretty, I mean, where do we go from there? (laughs) So the first bike around the world, how long did that take? Half a year, just over, 194 days. The next one, more recently, 2017, was 70, was it 78 days, 14 hours? hours. 40 minutes. That still stands as the record. Yeah. And, but with that in mind, that was a race in comparison to the first one, which means you probably had more experiences that you remember for the first one is that right would that be i mean there's as I mean, in cultural experiences maybe the there's no way i could have even when i finished if, if you'd if you if you'd met me 10 years ago i would have told you i'm never going to cycle around the world again because the time i'd done it felt like my everest mm-hmm. i felt like i'd left it all out there i would have told you that's the fastest i can go and then of course 10 11 years of experience doing other things watching with all Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. On with interest is the record that I set was, was beaten by big margins. You know, the guys and the girls who are really pushing this game were just doing phenomenal stuff. It went from full trekking with five panny bags and all your kit to bike packing ultra light people taking more inspiration from the racing world than from the trekking world mm. um you know carbon setup di2 you know just 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 really pushing the envelope in terms of ultra light pushing the distances and then what i've done in the last couple of years you know just stripping it all back full support team and just going nuts you know what is humanly possible what is the optimal between like ride time sleep pattern food and hydration you know this is absolutely just just completely shifting the dial in terms of what people think is possible in terms of ultra endurance. We smashed the world record by 37%. We took we took it from 123 days down to 78. Mm. So this was not about beating a record. This was about completely resetting people's expectations as to what was possible. So it is actually quite hard to compare. But so in answer to your question, at the first time I went around the world, I was trying to race. Like, it was exactly the same thing. I was just at a completely different point in my career in terms of experience. What, um, how big was your team on the second one? On the road at any one time, there was about eight, six to eight. But the total team in terms of performance, logistics and media, about 40. So I had a media crew based out of um, Cape Town. I had a logistics crew based out of uh, Bath and Edinburgh. And then I had the team that was on the road with me. So you had a, a was it a, like a an RV? Yeah, a couple of RVs on the road at any one time, sometimes three. So that's what you would sleep in. Yeah. Then you'd add a there'd be a vehicle with spares in tires, everything that you'd need yeah, to we, sustain. We sort of crudely called it the follow vehicle and the media vehicle. Right. So okay. you know they kind of switched roles and switched in when needed. But um, yeah, we had mechanic, performance manager. Um, you know drivers quite obviously at points in the world we had to have like the inside man you know be it russian drivers or chinese drivers or you know security whatever it was um but we tried to keep the team as fresh as possible there was only a couple of people who went all the way around with me for continuity and they were obviously on the performance side you know (laughs) you'll know what it's like when you're pushing really hard you kind of you kind of go into idiot mode you know if I was to like co- coordinate this project, if I was to be the team leader on the road, even though I'd employed everyone and I'd set them up to task, it would fail because I'm so sleep deprived. I'm in such a difficult place. You know, in terms of the emotional leadership, sure, everyone's looking to me. If I smile, everyone smiles. But but in terms of the, the big thinking, the strategy, decision like looking making. down the road, the decision making, yeah. I need great people around me. Yeah, yeah. You know, so first time around, it was me. Totally on my own, you know, how do I get through? Second time, I always say we because I get all the credit. I'm I'm a guy who sat on my bike for one thousand two hundred hours time trialing, but you know you, you, I couldn't do my job if it wasn't for forty people thinking ahead and and working seamlessly. How did the logistics like 
when you look when you draw those comparisons between the two challenges because they are two separate challenges although the same goal that first one the logistics behind things going wrong like flat tires whatever go you know whatever can go wrong with a bike probably did how did you get around it especially in places like iran pakistan yeah. india you're so cut off i mean you've you've worked in these parts of the world financially are cut off you mm-hmm. can't just go to the atm and take cash out if you run out you know travel wise if you if you get stuck you know it's a bit more bit more tricky spares and repairs yeah sure there was 5000 miles between decent bike shops basically the last one i saw was probably istanbul the next good bike shop is maybe kuala lumpur singapore yeah so yeah it's a good stint um broken spokes you know broken bits to the bike you've got to be you know hugely self-sufficient so if you look over the last sort of decade and a half of expeditions there's a whole bunch which have been like that you know you're kind of quite exposed when it comes to you know being self-sufficient and sort of getting by and figuring out when things go wrong and then there's been like the middle ground where i've got a crew with me maybe a film crew or a logistics crew and the sort of light support but i'm still trying to do quite a, quite a solo trip so for example when i broke the world record for the length of africa Mm. project which was called Africa Solo I was absolutely adamant that you know there was a line between me and those that were you know following the trip yeah sure we could film sections and you know there there could be that awareness and I had more company but I still wanted to get through in terms of like trying to figure out supplies and water and the rest of it through to what we've done in recent years which is you know I wouldn't even call myself an adventure I'm just a straight endurance athlete and it's purely about performance yeah but it's quite nice to have done that whole spectrum you know i love the wilderness stuff like when you're properly exposed and out there ocean rowing through the arctic you know when you're in places where you got yourself there you better better get yourself back out of there (laughs) but i also quite like as an athlete the dynamics you know i'm not a loner i'm not an introverted person so i quite like the dynamics when you're pushing it hard as an athlete and you look behind you and every conversation and every purpose is about making that bike go faster Mm. that's pretty cool as well yeah awesome um, that leads us on nicely to Africa because that, I mean, it is an amazing, yet yeah, mystical continent. I'd I'd suggest. You let me get this right. You did Cape, was it Cairo to Cape? Yeah, the traditional, the traditional sort of Pan Africa, Cairo to Cape Town. You know, lots of people have overlanded it, driven it, taken their landy. Yeah, you know, it's become more and more popular to ride it. There's pretty much only one route you can take, and that's down the east coast, as you imagine. Which is which has its which has its places as well yeah it's still pretty spicy um so the year before i had done a lot of filming through the commonwealth countries so there's there's 18 commonwealth countries through africa i started in sierra leone went east all the way across to kenya and then down to south africa so beautiful tapestry of countries and you know the rich culture so many of which we can relate to because of that 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 shared history and um then to go back but 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 when you're doing that and you're doing it on a filmmaking mission you know you're it's the it's the smell of wet paint, isn't it? You get mm. to see what they want you to see. You're meeting all the, yeah, the, yeah. the the you know the diplomats and the the top athletes. So then to go back the year later and just proper you know at the grassroots, you know, sleeping in truck stops in the side of the Sahara Desert in Sudan, and you know being in little villages in Ethiopian highlands, and you know properly being on your own and self sufficient. So that route basically took me through Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya. Tanzania, Zambia, Botswana, South Africa, and it becomes more and more familiar as you get south. You know, in the more yeah, Arabic, yeah. in the more Arabic north, in the desert north, it's it's quite tricky. Egypt, in particular, um, kind of similar issues to Pakistan, where 
you know, the fear is about what might happen to you. But the reality is, it's it's more just the police being, you know, over attentive. You know, it's just having a bit of freedom to to ride the race and to, you know, people they're, they're so worried about things, anything happening to tourists and travellers that, you know, to 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 go through and just do what you need to do and get by. I mean, the reality is most tourists either stick to the Nile up in Cairo or down the south by Lucknow and Aswan yeah. and whatnot, or they head into the peninsula where some of the big accidents have been. But um, well, I should say attacks. But but the route I took out in the sticks, you're fine. You're absolutely fine. I mean. The, the the people I met were wonderful. It was just the police, you know. It's just I couldn't wait to get to that Sudanese border and just have that freedom, you know. Just cro- get get into Sudan. And the wonderful thing about the the Sahara is, well, for good or bad, nine days out of ten you've got a cracking northerly. Yeah. So you know you absolutely fly through to Khartoum, but also you know as you probably know the Chinese have been working pretty hard to um, build roads in in most of Africa. <laughs> yeah. So I mean it's like a velodrome. There's the best road you can imagine going through the Sahara Desert. So I, you know, you absolutely fly, and then within moments of crossing into Ethiopia, it's talk about another world. It's one of the greatest juxtapositions I've ever seen across an international border. You go from the desert floor and and uh, and that culture that you would expect in Sudan into up to three and a half thousand meters and the jungles into the into you know and then south over the Blue Nile Gorge and it's just another world. And Ethiopia was pretty tough. Northern Kenya took a bit of security, um, mm. probably some of your old buddies. Um, you know, there's again a bit of overspill from some of the challenges in Somalia and Eritrea and and the east sort of parts there. Again, I didn't I didn't sense any real issues as I went through, but it was nice to have that security blanket. Yeah, yeah, the backup. Um, a lot of people. Well, I would suggest most people, nearly everyone, associates big wildlife with Africa. Yeah probably the most scared I've ever been is involved big animals because you're not reasoning with them were there any moments you know you're in the country of the yeah the big the big animals so. I mean the sad news is you've actually got to look pretty hard to find them yeah you know so it's, it's so you're not just sort of cycling along and they're everywhere which is which is a shame but um you know it's the same if you go to Scotland and think there's going to be a red deer around every corner but certainly crossing the um from like Zambia into Botswana there was a massive stretch stretch there across the Zambezi River. As soon as I crossed the Zambezi, it, there's a, a section they call the Elephant Highway. And during the day it was fair enough. Um because you cycle along and you can see them miles off. You know, they're pretty slow moving animals. They would stand there and you just have to stop and wait until they get off the road. But then as it got dark, <laughs> you know, there's no light there's no towns there's no very few cars passing and you're on your own and um i think my imagination you know was was probably a bigger issue than the actual wild animals because i wasn't cycling at the edge of the road anymore i was cycling down the middle white line because i wanted to be as far as i could from the bushes on each side (laughs) and my mind was just going nuts with all the lions and the and the stuff that was about to jump out and eat me so you know you're night riding in that pool of light from your 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 bike light in front of you just freaking yourself out you know you're you're not i'd love to have known what my heart was doing at that point but there was a couple of hours of night riding and then you'd see these huge gray you know uh, hulks up on the road in front of you and you've just you know you're just standing there on your own in the middle of nowhere with an elephant in the dark in front of you there was a wonderful point during the day i think it was the next day where i was coming along and i saw a giraffe and um it was just on the roadside about 15 meters off 
And as I got close, it started to sort of canter in parallel. And I'm on the time trial bars, you know, going at a decent lick. And this thing's just in perfect sync, just just cantering along beside Not me. Not even breaking a sweat. And it just it just <laughs> lolloped along for a good 20 seconds. And, you know, I was going at the same speed at it. And I just sort of thought, this is... If I could, if I could bottle why I do adventure and share it with my kids, it'd be moments like that. Yeah, the yeah. stuff you can't plan for. It's not actually finishing in Cape Town and getting another certificate for the wall. It's at full flight with a giraffe cantering alongside you. Yeah, and that's definitely. the stuff you can't plan for. Where were you, were you camping out on that one? Yeah, some of the time. But actually, um, the, oh, I mean, again, I hope you can relate. The friendship of strangers. So often when yeah. I stopped at the end of the day or into the night and I would ask whoever I met, I don't think I ever had to ask a second person for a meal to eat yeah, yeah. or a place to sleep. And it was interesting because when I went through Africa, Ebola was... Um, now, Ebola really only sort of was a problem through West Africa. Yeah. But, you know, here and in the press, people get confuzzled and they think Africa is a country rather than a continent. And so um, when I left, you know, all journalists would ask about was, was I scared of Ebola? Being eaten by a lion and terrorists. That was basically it. That's what Africa means to people. And I came back and I was like, you know what? You know, I never had to ask a second person for a place to sleep. Mm. And I don't think that would happen if you were cycling from Land's End to John O'Groats. No, not so, at all. So I kind of like to tell that story, which is, uh, well, it puts your faith back in humanity, you know, humanity a bit. This is my mind jumping around a little bit, but I've just thought about something. Your route on the second, the second world cycle you went up russia yeah obviously that had its own political issues no yeah. doubt getting across the country getting across the border yeah we went into china again that's probably the same thing where did you where did you once you got through to china where did you go straight down so uh, beijing's on the same degree of longitude as perth right so if i was to go any further east i to shanghai mm. you'd end up going back on yourself you'd you'd end up crossing the same degrees of longitude so um, stopped at Badalang, which is the Great Wall of China. Yeah, uh, flew flew straight down, and it's just I mean talk about talk about sort of a mind trip because it took me twenty eight days to race from Paris to Beijing. So imagine your every purpose, every thought, every everything for a month, twenty eight days, is to get from Paris to Beijing. You're on your bike from four o'clock in the morning till half nine, ten o'clock every night, sixteen hours every single day, and then last thing at night, you know, you're racing to the airport boxing the bike up or my mechanic is as we sort of as we arrive at the airport on the plane go 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 from wheels touching down in Perth Australia to me racing out was 35 minutes so you know I've slept on the plane on my Lycra march through the airport go 35 minutes on the bike and the next target Brisbane and your mind just tweaks out because mm. You know, you've done what you set out to do. You know, you've achieved the thing that you've been thinking about for a month. You're so sleep deprived and you, you could see what my cortisol levels were. You could see, you know, my immunology from all the tests we were doing. You know, I was wrecked. But the psychological journey yeah. is fascinating because I was at my lowest ebb. I was struggling the most at the start of each continent because I just I didn't have the blinkers on again. It was hard to just without any break, just go to go, you know, shit, we're heading into the outback. Next continent, go. Same when I flew out of Auckland. You know, you think, well, I've done it. I've left the winter behind, Southern Hemisphere, all the night riding, Sub-Zero, all that brutal stuff that happened through New Zealand. And then we land in Anchorage, right, go, five and a half thousand miles, Halifax. And it's just your mind slightly sort of comes undone. 
at such a massive target without any respite. I mean, awesome, unbelievable. Um, going, we're going to move on a little bit now, and we're going to talk about your resilience in these sort of situations, um, and also your your ability or how you deal with failure, because no doubt that has happened in your life. And I think there was a was it the Atlantic row? Yeah, one there was something went wrong. What 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 happened there? Yeah, I mean the Atlantic uh, nearly ended it all. Uh, Twenty eight days in. Again, going for another world record, the fastest mid-Atlantic. So we left from Tarfea, Morocco. Again, mm-hmm. another interesting part of the world on the border of Western Sahara. Yeah. Um, across to Barbados. We thought we'd done it. We thought we'd done it. Six of us, so triple skull, three on the oars at any one time. You're yeah. rowing two hours on, two hours off, two hours on, two hours off for a month. So you never sleep for more than 90 minutes. And we got three, four days from the finish into Caribbean waters, and then we capsized. <laughs> and when we capsized, when we went over, we had one of the cabin hatches open. Oh, right, okay. So the boat didn't self-right. The boat flooded and stayed turtle. So we spent 14 hours trying to get out of there. We eventually got picked up by a Taiwanese cargo vessel, which was coming back across the Atlantic. So we you know, spent 10 days on board and then got dropped off in Gibraltar. So, I mean, that sounds a bit glib, but... You know, the first six hours. When we went over, when you're in the rowing deck, feet strapped in, and a boat goes over, and you just hold your breath, sit tight, and wait for it to self-right. And then it doesn't. And then it doesn't. <laughs> you swim for the surface, you're dressed in boxer shorts and a t-shirt, no life jacket, Everyone's float- everything's floating around you, you're in pretty rough seas, you're 500 miles offshore. You know, first few minutes, is the boat going to stay on the surface? If it goes down, we're dead. Then all the training kicks in you know all the offshore survival knowing where the grab bag was where the life raft is all the stuff that you do you know tens of times in training and you think you've got dialed time slows down you know you think you're good but it's a lot harder you know when the heat's up on like that and um it spent it took 45 minutes to get everyone into the life raft one of the guys nearly nearly drowned took on a lot of water in the first you know in the capsize so our first priority was him we tethered the boat on a 50 meter line to the life raft so that we didn't because everything we needed to be rescued was still yeah. so like the EPIRB the flares the sat phone all the VHF all the, step, the kit that we needed was somewhere in that flooded space still upside down still upside down so then you know it took six hours swimming back and forth diving underneath yeah. reopening the hatch doors to try and find the kit and I mean to not put too fine a point on it only two of us ever left that life raft so all the training, we all knew what to do. Mm. We all knew how to do it. And yet when we capsized, there was, I guess there was a a misspoken assumption that somebody else would do it. There was sort of a, not a hierarchy, but like a, you know, a couple of the guys just hugged their knees and closed their eyes. Yeah, and defaulted to a sort of like, well, someone else would do it. And the reality is, if we didn't do what was necessary, we were going to die. Mm. I've, you know, I've sadly seen people paying that ultimate price, especially on the exp- on the mountains. But the Atlantic is the only time where I've very clearly thought, and without panic or emotion, because that comes afterwards, mm. I am going to die. Yeah. And you know, when you're struggling to stay on the surface, when you're taking on water, when you're in really rough seas and you're getting battered around, you think, right, okay, in the next ten minutes, this is it. So you get very process driven, or at least I hope you do. 
uh, you know, you, you, you focus on what you can do and um, you try and figure out what little things are going to make a difference. It took time. Things take a lot more time in those those high stress situations and all the training you know there's a massive difference between knowing what to do and doing it so you can go on as many training courses as you want but for me it's about self-awareness it's about how you see yourself in a given situation and I don't blame my team I don't there's no there's no resentment at all but it's 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 ultimately about building up your comfort zone that so that when you do get thrown into the shit like that when you are you know in harm's way and I hope it's never quite as dire as that that you kind of know how you operate. Now, we're all human. We all come undone at some point. You know, I I definitely struggled after the capsize, you know, for a period. But during those 14 hours, you know, myself and Matt did what we did to save the lives of myself and and the rest of the team. And it was it was almost void of emotion. Mm -hmm. You know, there was there was very there was there was I came back and again journalists would say, Oh, weren't you scared of sharks? Weren't you thinking of this? Weren't you No, you're not none of that none of that relates because A, you've been through your training, you know what to do. But B, there's a very there's a very there's actually very little you can do in those given situations. You're you're reacting to things which you haven't thought of in the training. You yeah. know, for example, like the dagger board was now, you know, pointing up into the air and it was yeah. acting like a sail and, and and drifting the boat really fast. So, you know, diving underneath, opening your eyes in salt water navigating that flooded space we had to sort of you know pull, 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 pull the dagger yeah, board yeah. down which is very difficult reopening the hatch doors i'd never you know one of the theories was that we could grab the axe climb onto the, the outside and then cut our way in hey we find out that that doesn't work yeah. you know <laughs> i was on top wielding this with all my might and it didn't even make a dent on the hull mm. you know the reason that the life raft didn't come out is because it was trapped in the cabin space with an airlock you know, it was literally sealed in there by, you know, the weight of the water yeah, yeah. above it. So, you know, I've advised so many ocean rowing crews since that day, just little things to do differently. Because when you're back here playing around in a wave pool, yeah. having fun, learning the tricks, you know, it's a different reality when things go the wrong way up. Yeah, I agree. I, I sort of, a few memories coming back there. <laughs> but um, what was, uh, so you've done that 14 hours. Obviously, I'd like to add there that when you're in a, a life or death situation, staying alive becomes very much a matter of fact thing doesn't it yeah 100 you don't sort of like well hopefully people that do get themselves in that situation don't go into flapping and becoming more useless than they probably would be anyway and it does become a matter of fact you're just like right i need to do this i need to do this it becomes a drip process driven process i suppose but you obviously got picked up by the uh the, the cargo ship yeah what was, I mean, that was 10 days then, you're back on that, and you're yeah. going back the way that you don't want to be going back on a yeah. boat. I mean, at that point, I was just glad to be alive. Yeah. You know, at one o'clock in the morning in high seas, if you're climbing up a nine-meter rope ladder in the size of something the size of a football field, you know, you're just happy to be alive. Elated. Um, it was funny, because I didn't have any clothes, so all the crew were either Indonesian or Taiwanese. Uh, so I'm six foot six foot three, ninety kilos. Um, so I'm I'm dressed in clothes that don't fit, sleeping in a chair for uh, for ten days. My God, they have it tough on those boats. Yeah. Nine months on, nine months on shifts. There was no gym. There was this, the only social area was the canteen. Uh, they had one television, and they had for the television they had a box set of um, what's it called? Walking um, one of that zombie. F- Series Walking with the Dead, or um, and yeah. the, and the entire back catalogue of Jean Claude Van Damme. Oh, classic! So, 
<laughs> you can't so, go wrong. <laughs> so Unbelievable. <laughs> it sounds like my DVD library. <laughs> so, you know, how surreal is this? You spend sort of 10 days living these guys' reality all day and you're not working in the engine room. But I just couldn't believe the world that I experienced, you know, how good we've got it, you know, seeing what these guys did. And it was funny, and the food was diabolical. So for the first couple of days, you're just thankful to be alive. And the I had really, really bad salt rashes from spending all that time in the water. My skin was in a yeah. very bad way. I was really, really uncomfortable, um, which might sound a bit flippant, but uh, not when your entire skin's on fire. And then um, I got to know the captain a little bit. We got to make one phone call home on the 10 days because there was only one, one phone, and that was in the captain's office. But as we came into to shore at, in Gibraltar I went up to speak to him and I said uh, what's the plan he said well we're too big to go ashore so we're going to anchor off and they're going to send a pilot boat out and you, you guys are going to go in because their plan was to go straight onto Egypt they weren't stopping in Gibraltar right. they were stopping for us and they said because we're stopping here a couple of other people are going to get off with you uh, my um, chief engineer he's finished his nine months so he's going home for a holiday and, he, and, and I said and, and the chef and I said, oh, has he, has he finished his rotor as well? He said, no, he's fired. He's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of joked and I said, I said well, I wasn't going to say anything, but as soon as you bring it up, uh, you know, because we'd spent the first two, three days just grateful to be alive and then spent the next week going, right, as soon as we just nearly died, this feels slightly ungrateful and they've saved their life, but this <laughs> is unbelievably bad. I mean, I can't tell you how shocking these rations were. So the poor lad lost his job. <laughs> if you lose your job as the chef, on one of those cargo ships. I'm not sure where you go as your career. Yeah, I know. Well, don't be a chef, <laughs> but anyway. So that's you back in jib. I mean, that's quite a terrifying... How did you capsize? It was kind of weird, because, I mean, there's points in the Atlantic where we had massive swells, you know, you know, like huge mountains of water, you know, so we'd have, like, 15 seconds between peak yeah. and trough. The average speed at that point to, to break the record was 3.8 knots going across the Atlantic. There was points we'd go at 16 knots down the front of these mm. waves massive massive oceans of water um it wasn't that it was short sharp chop it was confused waters really? it was not big a big valley coming in water. from all different angles yeah just confused waters just you know we were on the currents we were right we were flying the speed of the boat mainly came from the currents at that point as opposed to what we were putting through the oars hmm. so we were flying and then just some awkward waves came in the side and just just tipped the boat over and we got slack you know um, discipline. The, it was we were right on the equator. It was super humid, and um, you got to keep the hatch door shut. Yeah. We were we were on a change of shift, and you know, man in, man out. You know, keep it tight. Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how uncomfortable. It doesn't matter that it's a sweat box. You just got to. But you know, maybe it was open for ten minutes just to air it out. You know, yeah, yeah. and you know, twenty eight days in, we got lazy. So. It wasn't like it was open all the time, so you could sort of say bad luck. But in those situations, you got to keep the discipline. Yeah. I agree, definitely. Um, how did you bounce back from that? Obviously, you've gone through the you've gone through that the initial elated to be alive, then the food shit, then <laughs> which doesn't really correlate. Then you get dropped die. off in jib. <laughs> I mean, jib. You know, you can spend a day there and you've done it, and then you're back home. How did you then? How did you process that? You know, as far as you're concerned, you didn't do what you set out to do. So yeah. it must have been quite a difficult pill to swallow at the at that stage, anyway. Yeah. I felt sorry for the rest of the lads because they were stuck there for half a week because they didn't have any papers. Mm. I was lucky to have multiple passports, so I was on the next flight home. Um, I got married eight weeks later, okay, which was not a knee-jerk reaction, but that happened straight afterwards. Um, 
I was a wreck. My wife, Nikki, was, you know, the picture of composure. She was absolutely mm. wonderful. And there was me an hour before I was about to get hitched. My best men had never seen me cry. And uh, an hour an hour before Nikki walked down the aisle, I got married in a teepee in a field. And um, an hour before I just started greeting, I was just an absolute wreck. I was like, what's wrong with me? And I was... I wasn't sleeping well. I had, you know, some some really sort of recurring um, nightmares and daydreams, and I just wasn't myself. I, it was nothing about sort of career and future and the rest of it. It was just kind of the, some of the what ifs came back to me, and mm. some of the trauma from some of those dives and stuff. And ugh, it's hard to explain, but I wasn't great. But I mean, looking back, you know, it's funny because when the um, I had a humanist wedding, I didn't have a, 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 a and so the 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 celebrant, as they call them, did the repeated vows, which we'd written, so I knew them. When he said the lines about us getting married, it was like in one ear out the other. I was there, but I wasn't yeah. listening. And so then I couldn't think what to say because I couldn't remember what he just said. You know, you're just meant to yeah, repeat what you he just said. Else, I was completely yeah. spaced. You know, I was with Nikki and I was very in the moment in one sense, but I just couldn't hear. I was It was a very out-of-body experience. So I, I eventually sorted it out and he repeated them quietly and I got it sorted and we got married but then um, my mother-in-law afterwards said you know I know you work in television Mark but what's with the dramatic pauses you know this is not uh, and I said those weren't dramatic pauses I was bloody falling to bits so I think you know there was a bit of a disconnect with where I was personally and I did struggle for a while I mean I went away to to the Maldives and on my honeymoon went to learn to dive and you know I was fine for the first couple of dives and then I was um, on the seabed doing some drills you know when you do the basic stuff take your mask off and whatnot and i just had a complete freak out you know mm. you can imagine this is only a couple of months after paddling around trying to and ugh, it couldn't have been tamer but it's one of the only times i've had you know a panic a panic attack like that and i was like shit i've just got to get to the surface and i spoke to a, a psychiatrist when i came back and i just chatted it through and she said look mark this is perfectly human she said you know what you've been through is is you know a real trauma it's a scar it'll take time don't bury it mm-hmm. you know uh, talk about it um be honest about it find people who can relate um but she said yeah if it's still messing you up in a year's time let's do something but she said you don't need me right now mm-hmm. she said you just need your buddies you need your family you need your friend you need uh you know a good dose of reality and you just need to work this through you know like any physical injury a mental injury will heal yeah but it doesn't heal if you bury it it's it, what what you were going through is basically a normal reaction to something that was pretty traumatic. Yeah. So it's, you're yeah. allowed to feel like that. You're allowed to go through those sort of feelings, yeah. emotions, and actions. But I if suppose. you but if you've not if you've not that's absolutely right. I couldn't agree more. But when you're in it, you've not been there before. No, exactly. You think there's something wrong with yeah. you, and you think you're always going to be that way, and you feel very alone. Mm. I also felt very alone because you know there was obviously a bit of a fracture in the team. I got on with everyone, but you know. You know, certain people hadn't done what was necessary out there, and it was it was difficult to, you know, really just understand, mm. you know, what what yeah. So anyway, I've been in other similar situations, but but that was a real turning point in my career. It's it's I've put my teams to, differently together ever since. You know, I care much much more about you know the the corners you've been in than the successes. Yeah, I'm always very very wary about you know when people tell me what they've done. I always say, and what did you actually do? 
Like, don't tell me about the impressive companies or the projects you were a part of. Because if all six of us sat down and said, you know, we were in this and we capsized, you'd be so impressed. Mm-hmm. You'd be so impressed. Tell me about a day you were up against it. They would tell you a story. That doesn't for a moment tell you what they were thinking, what they were communicating and what they actually did. Yeah, yeah. So understanding your part and how you are under stress is a very different thing than the classes you've been to or the, or the, or the teams you've been a part of. So that sort of personal. So yeah, it's, it's, it's allowed me to plan my projects differently. Hopefully avoid some of the same mistakes. But um, yeah, live and learn. Mate, it's unbelievable. The stuff you've done is just on another level. What's next? Well, I'm just back from a project in Chile. We just did a free ride down the world's highest volcano. So watch for that film coming out. <laughs> nice. 6,900 metres climbing to that height with a bike on your back and then basically doing a 7k descent was pretty gnarly um so just back from there uh my big dream over the next couple of years is to to race race across america i've never really entered an event i've always created big expeditions but ram is the world's biggest endurance race so it's always been a bucket list thing for me and uh i still think i've got it in me to do some damage where's that from and to california across to the northeast okay so it's like a three three and a half thousand mile race yeah and uh, when when are you planning on doing that? It's June every year. Oh, right, okay. So it's a real bucket list event. I'll be out there filming it this summer as a pair. And the plan is to learn the event, put the team around me, and then take everything into a solo race next year in 2021. And put a shift in and get it smashed. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not being flippant. It is insanely hard. Mm. But the shortest world record I've got right now is 6,000 miles. This is three and a half thousand miles. So the distance doesn't intimidate me, but the intensity does. It's yeah. everything I've ever done, but just with less sleep. What sort of time are they what sort of time are they cracking it in? The record's seven and a half days. That's unbelievable. I mean that's pretty fucking impressive to be fair. Excuse my friend. <laughs> but uh yeah, awesome. Uh Mark, that's been an amazing chat. I've done all I've done pretty much is listen to your amazing adventures. And uh, I look forward to hearing about more and maybe I could try and come on one maybe one day. We'll see how it goes, see how much time we've got. Uh, it's great to chat. I think we need to go for a dram and share some more adventures. Yeah, definitely. That'd be awesome. All right. Mate, thanks so much. Cheers, Cheers, buddy. Thanks a lot. That's the end of the podcast. Thanks very much to Mark for taking the time out. Really appreciate you listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow me and the Book of Man for the latest news. Thanks to Talisker for supporting this podcast and for a special offer they've done for fans of this podcast. You can have 10% off a Talisker 10-year-old or a Talisker 18-year-old at masterofmalt.com if you use the code TALISKERWILDTALES10 at the checkout. This offer is available until the 31st of January 2020 or until promo stocks last and it does only apply at masterofmalt.com. When you go onto their site, you can check out their T's and C's. Thanks again. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.